1: .ca TL Talk Radio Season 5 Episode 30 Welcome to Season 5 Episode 30 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn hetton and Randy Ziginfus. Where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Zickenfoos.
2: And I'm Lynn And Good afternoon, Randy. Good
1: afternoon. So,
2: interesting book came across our desks. And today we have the opportunity to speak with Dick Thomas and Lauren Dalabella, co authors of Nine Billion Schools Why the World Needs Lifelong Personalized Learning for All. So, Dick Thomas is an AIA, an American Institute of Architect, architect by trade. He's vice president of architecture for SHP, a nationally recognized architecture firm focused on learning spaces of all kinds. Celebrating over 20 years of practice with the firm, Dick's education portfolio reflects a wide spectrum of facility planning and design solutions. He's participated on long-range planning committees, assisted with curriculum strategy panels, and developed strategic standards. As a former member of a future-oriented innovation board for a major technology company, he has a keen interest in how technology can facilitate the rapidly changing approaches to learning in all its manifestations. His co written book, Nine Billion Schools, examines the importance of uh, reimagining the worldwide approach towards education and learning in light of an expanding population and an increasingly rapid development of technology. (coughs) And uh, Lauren is also joining the conversation. Lauren Della Bella, co author, is president of SHP. Um, She's the first woman to lead the firm in its 100 plus year history. Lauren spearheaded the development of SHP's highly regarded community engagement process and launched Insight Magazine, an award-winning publication dedicated to innovative design ideas and industry success stories. Under her leadership, the firm has become an authority on sustainability in 21st century educational design. Her passion for design, education, and planning is evidenced in her leadership roles in several industry groups. She currently serves as president of the Architectural Foundation of Cincinnati and an executive board member of the Design Futures Council.
1: So welcome to the podcast, Dick and Lauren. Thank you Thank so
2: you. much. It's good, it's good to, be,
3: to here. be here.
1: All right. So let's start the conversation with a personal story that connects us with this world of architecture and the topic of your book, this idea of personalized learning for everyone.
3: I began my career... I actually, my background is in urban planning, and I began my career working in Appalachian communities where there was an extreme amount of poverty. And I was working to help people get into warm, safe and dry homes, and most of the individuals that I worked with were living in circumstances where they did not have uh, indoor plumbing, no Hot and cold running water, oftentimes uh, very little electricity, and and in some cases dirt floors. And I was just shocked to you know realize after having grown up in a fairly suburban lifestyle um, that people were still living like this in the United States. And I I came to realize very quickly that the only thing that really separated from them was the fact that I had had a high-quality education. I had had access to a high-quality education. And in many cases, these people had not. So the idea of providing access to education for all is something that I've been passionate about really my whole life. And that's really where that, that came from, my whole adult life. So a couple of years ago, this is back in 2015, I was um,
4: honored to be part of a Small group of people from around the country that um, were gathered to assess innovation strategies for a large technology company. And over the course of six or so years, I attended a number of events that looked at different levels of innovation and concepts relative to manufacturing, relative to uh, the architecture and engineering construction industry. Um, And out of that, Conversation began to emerge the theory of design thinking, which is not an uncommon um, experience in, in many conversations about education and the importance or the efficacy of design thinking as a learning tool. The last session I attended was in June of 15, and it was focused on the integration of design thinking in the future of education. And these presentations involved uh, invited guests from all over the United States to come in and speak about ways they were applying design thinking to new educational paradigms. Prior to that experience, I was a traditional architect looking at the way we're presented with information and the challenges of design through something called a program, which defines what we're supposed to respond to after that presentation, I kept asking myself whether or not those programs were as good as they could be. In other words, was I designing to the wrong set of criteria? Mm
1: -hmm.
4: And um, it really caused me to, to take a step back and think hard about this question of education. And through my lens, which is buildings that support that activity, I was beginning to wonder if there wasn't a better way to interpret the problem And to perhaps come up with a solution that was better than what we've been experiencing historically. So that was the spark that went off in my head that said, "Gee, I should really be thinking more about what does it mean to talk about the future of education, um, particularly if I'm going to be tasked or charged with the responsibility to create environments that support that."
3: I think I should also add that you know, as an organization, as a firm, SHP is um, almost 120 years old, and we started doing education work 100 years ago. So we've had a long history of working in educational environments from pre-K through 20, and we were really struggling to try and figure out how to help our clients better envision what the future of education was going to look like. So we were not only asking ourselves these questions personally, but we were asking these questions in the context of our work and our clients needs and trying to figure out how to better lead those conversations and give um, you know give them more robust material to work with when they were making decisions. Mm-hmm. So this was something that as an organization we were really interested in kind of getting our arms around.
1: So what was it that you, you have this you this personal passion around Your profession and design and and this spark of learning so why a book what what was the thing that sort of leapt you into that arena to say we want to get our ideas down here and and push these out to a larger audience
3: we actually um we began the conversation with this idea that how do you how do you start to really generate enthusiasm um, around the concept of lifelong, life-wide, life-deep, personalized learning, and we said, look, in 2050 there will be nine billion people on the planet, and every one of those people essentially needs a school unto themselves. Not in the physical bricks-and-mortar sense, but from a standpoint of we all learn differently, where um, we all excel differently, and if we are to flourish as human beings. Um, We all need access to education uh, that's very personalized to what our individual needs are. And we really started with this idea of starting a movement. And starting a movement is a really complicated thing. So the book just seemed like a natural way to start getting ideas out there. Um, Certainly with the book, it, it became the catalyst for creating a website, for doing speaking engagements for talking to people like you guys, um, it's really been the catalyst for a lot of different things. Mm-hmm.
4: And so. I, I think a book is still a very tangible example of a voice, right? We can we live in a digital world where there's all kinds of ideas expressed every second of the day, 24-7, um, and some of them you retain and some of them don't. You don't. A book is a way of still capturing, in essence, an idea, and a philosophy, something you can hang on to. It hasn't gone out of, completely out of date yet, so it's an opportunity for us to drive a stake in the ground um, with this sort of tangible piece of work and then follow it up with all of the other opportunities uh, relative to social media, um, conversation, interaction, and so
1: forth. So what I think is really interesting about this is you know, being people here that are solely in the educational sphere. Um, it's it's not often that um, we look at these adjacent fields. So it's it's exciting that we have people in a, in a design field and a, an architectural field specifically that have these same sort of passions. And I feel like we're talking the same language. So that's really exciting.
4: Well, that's good to hear because we see similar connections. We We look at the business world and education and find enormous number of parallels to this conversation. And that's something we're interested in exploring. We can talk about that later, but it, it, it is a very broad and very complex, very holistic sort of conversation that we'd like to pursue.
3: The other thing that you know we found when we really started trying to better understand what does the future edge of, ed- of education look like was that we needed to be talking to a lot of different people. with a wide variety of different backgrounds, and so we weren't just talking to people in the education community. We were, we were talking to economists and sociologists and anthropologists and uh, technology people, and I mean, you know, just a wide variety of different people to try and better understand what the future was going to look like, and how do we, how do we not just get dragged along by the future, but how do we create the future that we want to see happen?
2: So let's jump into the book and start with the first section where you share the foundations for the 9 billion school movement. And you've talked a little bit about it, um, your idea that every single person on earth um, really needs that personalized experience that will last a lifetime. So tell us a little bit more about the why um, and maybe even some of the how this this works.
3: I think that, you know, for me, a lot of it goes back to kind of where I started with my my story of working in Appalachia, this idea of dignity, human dignity is so underpinned by um, the the education that we have and the education that we have access to. And learning is so essential to that idea of human flourishing and building human dignity. And so I think that's really at the core of what we started with. And again, the idea that there are nine, there will be nine billion people on the planet, this is not something that can happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are lots and lots of different people working on how do we provide access to education, um, even in the most remote of locations. And we've had the opportunity to meet several of them that are doing you know, just some really innovative and exciting things. Um, but if we, as a, as a society, are going to excel, uh, whether that's in the United States or that's outside the United States, um, whether that's in the developing world or the the developed world, um, we have to help each other with this topic. And we have to find a way to provide those opportunities to everyone. And we have lots and lots of tools, and those tools are changing all the time. But not everybody has access to those tools. So it's, you know, like I said, it's about starting a movement, creating an understanding, um, and starting to find like minds that are willing to get involved in making this happen.
4: And I think to the degree the question of how needs to get answered by, um, I could be flippant and say by any means necessary, Mm -hmm. but in fact it's probably more true than not. we need to explore every opportunity we have to try to advance this notion of human dignity and every person is a school unto themselves. You know, there's tremendous power in that. How we do it varies almost as much as, or as, as frequently as the people that we um, come in contact with. There is tons and tons of conversation, as I'm sure you know about different strategies about how to do this. And we're working diligently to get our voice into each of those conversations through research. Um, We'll talk a little bit later, perhaps, about the development of an institute that we are working on to help answer this question as to how um, research advocacy, uh, consulting, um, which is kind of an offshoot of what we do as architects, but a little bit different. And then becoming a resource that connects dots with other individuals and other
1: ideas. How is getting into the conversation as deeply as we can possibly mm-hmm. get into it? So we can come back to that idea of, of sharing more about the Institute. But sticking sure. sticking with the, the, the book, and the, in the earlier parts of the book, you talk about this first 20% of life. Which is sort of parallel to the time that we spend in more traditional school. Uh, what are some of the key ideas that you could get across to our listeners in this podcast around that that component or that part of the book?
3: I think the most important thing, and you know, as educators, you guys are seeing this uh, every day in in what you do, is that we are we have for decades, your hundreds of years had a traditional expectation of school in terms of the the years that we spend there, uh, what those years mean, what happens when you get out of high school, what happens when you get out of college. And we've had um, curriculums that have evolved and changed, whatever, but there's never been a time in that process where the pace of change has been what it is now. And really for the first time in sort of the history of education, What we're seeing is uh, less demand for acquiring or teaching knowledge because of the availability and access to knowledge everywhere, and more demand for teaching, understanding, learning, uh, learning to learn, but also learning how to apply the knowledge that you've gained. And so, what's happened is the traditional years of education are, are changing dramatically, and we are thinking more about um, different kinds of skills than we have in the past. So the ability to communicate, the ability to collaborate, the ability to think creatively, the ability to innovate, entrepreneurship. um, You know, all the sort of things that you're hearing more and more frequently now are becoming much more important, and they're affecting how curriculum is being built, and curriculum is affecting how space is being designed and how we use space, and all of those things. So, you know, the, the tremendous amount of change that's occurring in, um, in particularly the pre K 12 world, forcing a whole new paradigm on higher education. And higher education is not only being pressed from the K 12 side, but also from the workplace. Because the gap between what's needed in the workplace and what's going on in higher education has been growing. And so the demand to start to close that gap is getting greater every day. So, you know, some of the some of the essays that appear in that section of the book are about challenging some of the conventional thinking about traditional education.
4: As an architect, you might expect that I try to apply some of these things through my history of, of trying to create environments in some of the concepts about play that we've explored engage you know the notion of let's say we're going to design a dining facility how do we integrate education into the dining experience right so how do we begin to think about everything that we do is a learning mechanism and not just in a casual sense but in actually a, a very deliberate sort of forthright sense so, you know, we explored the possibility of, of creating a, a dining adventure that also teaches you how the food was prepared, which was grown next door, and you could understand a little bit about how it came out of the earth and what sort of seed cultures were used, and all of that is available to you to the process. And not that I'm hung up on food, but we had we had another idea um, about developing a virtual dining experience that allowed you to pick a point in history and through a virtual reality medium, enjoy a dinner in 18th century France. Um, That might sound really far-fetched, but there's actually people trying to do that right now. Um, So this idea that what we do for play is also a way we educate ourselves about the broader world um, is something I think we can advance on a regular basis. And it's become part of what we do as a design firm um, to begin to ask ourselves, how do we incorporate learning into every experience we're creating? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Does yeah. that answer your
1: question? Yeah, that's a, that's a your last statement there was was really exciting. And one of the connections that I'm making throughout this whole conversation so far is we talk a lot around here about learner-centered education and how do we shift that paradigm and sort of starting with the learner and that the learning is really the key reason why we're here and that learning happens in each learner in an individual way. So lots of connections uh, and very exciting, the things that you're talking about.
4: And I, I think just the fact that the way the question was phrased, you know, the first 20% of life, well, that means there's 80% left, right? So what are we doing with what we do to enhance learning and that, that balance of 80%? That, that's where I think the real challenge is, is never to stop. Mm-hmm.
3: And so, that's really where the, you know, the big shift is, is that it's not, it's not enough anymore to just take the paper the day you graduate and think that learning stops. Um, it, the amount of learning that we have to do in our work life and our life after traditional education is exponentially greater now. Than, than what it's been before. And as you think about the fact that we're looking at generations that will have multiple careers, um, numerous jobs, that demand to constantly be learning is only going to grow. And that's irrespective of just trying to keep up with change and technology and some of the other things that would affect us in both our work and personal lives.
2: Mm-hmm. And certainly as as adults in our 80% of our life, the remaining 80% as you talk about in section three, um, you know, we're learners, we're curious, and we're collaborating and communicating with each other. And that's one of the reasons that we do this podcast is just to really have an opportunity to learn from other experts such as yourselves. Um, and as looking at section three, where you focus on that remaining 80%, we make connections to our profile of a graduate. And the profile of a graduate is our vision for what we believe a Salisbury Township School District learner needs to have in regard to knowledge, skills, and dispositions to be successful and, um, life-ready in life-ready and whatever he or she chooses to do next. So certainly, there are a lot of connections there, um, mm-hmm. thinking about curiosity and empathy and um, thinking together, as you say. You know, why is that important to the nine billion schools movement?
4: So the, this is this. There's a line in this particular section, one of the one of the essays in this section from Sarah Singer-Nury. Nuri, that is one of my favorite lines in the book. It says curiosity may be the very thing that moves us towards a more just world. Um, it's a really, really powerful statement. And I think it underscores why we need to advance this question of personalized learning as much as possible. Right. I spend a lot of time looking at the advances in technology and how they are going to begin to shape how we learn. Right. And um, I, I think Lauren perhaps referenced this earlier. I'm trying to remember. We've had several conversations today. This idea that content, information, which has been kind of the mainstay of how we've taught for years and years and years, the consumption of content. That's becoming something we perhaps don't need to teach much anymore. What we need to do is teach more about what to do with the content since it is immediately and readily available in uh, more quantity than we could ever imagine. Um, going out and finding it is no longer the challenge. Figuring out what to do with it, and perhaps discerning the truth out of multiple truths, is is our challenge for the future. And that leads to a curious mind, I think. The more curious you are about exploring options that you get through this access to information is part of how we're going to sustain a just and, and viable world going forward. Mm-hmm. So I, I see curiosity and the fact that empathy um, centers around understanding the different points of view. We were just talking about this this notion that um, you know, our generation, I won't tell you how old we are, but you could probably guess is right? <laughs> still largely responsible for much of the decision making that happens in society today. And our ability to empathize with upcoming generations and their point of view, which is often completely different than ours, is critical to whether or not we make good decisions. And teaching that in the first place is a challenge. Getting people to do it in the second place is sometimes, and equal challenge so you, you had some thoughts on that earlier
3: if you want to add oh I think that you know I run into this so often with um, other business leaders education leaders you know it's so it's so hard um, not to make decisions from your own you know personal experience or generational biases and there's there's such a huge difference in what's coming versus what's been. And to be able to understand that and to be thinking about it as those decisions are getting made are critical, one, because our generation's on its way out of power. So that's important. And we need to make certain that we're, you know, that the generations that are coming are, and bringing their own biases, are also prepared for making good decisions about the future. But they're going to do things entirely differently. So to be preparing for that now, really critical. And the other thing I wanted to mention was, um, in terms of your profile of a graduate, I'm seeing that more and more again among many of our education clients, which I think is, is great. One of the mainstay concepts in the book is this idea of creating an individual flourishing plan, and the uh, we call them IFPs, and it's about flourishing across a lifetime. The idea of, you know, really, what is my learning across my lifetime? need to look like and how does that, you know, how does that help me do all of the things in my life that I want to do, whether it's a career path or a personal path, um, something that's important to me from a recreational standpoint or whatever else. And I think that we have to be thinking in those kinds of terms because we have to be positioning ourselves um, to adapt to a lot of different, a lot of different change in the
1: future. So- um, before we actually get to our what we call our lightning ra- lightning response <laughs> questions, um, let's go back. Um, Dick, you mentioned earlier the institute um, that you yeah. have developed. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and share that with our listeners?
4: <laughs> so, in in addition to the book, as sort of this tangible evidence of a voice that's speaking um, other voices relative to the world of personalized learning. Um, we think there are a number of initiatives that are important to advancing that voice. The one that we settled on was the formation of a nonprofit institute called the 9 Billion Schools Institute, whose main focus is in four areas of advocacy, research, consulting and we call it resourcing, which is a fancy word for just connecting the dots, uh, with other voices um, like ours. and perhaps not like ours, but have a different or interesting perspective to offer um, institute is barely a year old, but it's off and running. Um, we do uh, several things. Um, we provide a consulting service called Future Casting, which uh, is a process of trying to identify what you would like to be Basically, it's identifying the future you want to have and then designing a strategy to get there. So for some of our education clients who are wondering what kind of future they're going to face, we can help them envision that future 10 years out and then help them chart a course for how to get there. That's significant in many respects because there's uh, education is a complex thing and um, if we want to keep having all of the options that we have today available for us 10 years from now, some things are going to have to change and some people are going to have to change. And some belief systems about what we're teaching needs to change. Um, The the Institute also does research. We have uh, several projects going on with a research partner. um, uh, Arizona State University is a partner in ours in a couple of efforts, um, one of which I'm Really fascinated about it. It involves to the to the last question on curiosity and empathy. It actually involves the development of a gaming platform that supports the development of the whole person, um, which works in small communities of eight to ten people. Huh. Uh, and I won't say any more than that because I'll probably tip the hit the company. That sounds a interesting. There, but, <laughs> um, it is a, it's a really intriguing tool to advance. Um, much of what we talked about is the reason why curiosity and empathy are important to learning. Mm -hmm. There's several other research endeavors that we're involved with with ASU, and we're also beginning to look for other uh, institutional partners like ASU to join the conversation about the future of learning. So the institute is off and running. Um, it's, It's devoted to exploring this question in a much, much deeper way than we could ever do as a an architectural design practice Um, it operates independently of the practice but it also is a is a great resource for um, keeping shp alive for its next century of operations
2: Mm -hmm. so lightning round time which randy and i love this part we added this this season in our fifth season uh, because it gives us a lot of other sort of um, rabbit hole to, to pursue in in this content and these content areas. So uh, these notes will also list into our show notes for our listeners. But first, who is one expert that our listeners should connect with to learn more about lifelong personalized learning or looking at uh, teaching and learning through the lens of architecture? Um, anybody that you would want to share with us?
3: I'm not sure about the lens of architecture, teaching and learning through the lens of architecture. I think, I mean, not to sound arrogant, but I think we're doing the most interesting and breakthrough mm-hmm. type of work in that regard. Sure. Um, but you know, certainly from a standpoint of just personalized learning, you know, that I think pr- the best person to start with is uh, Ken Robinson, and because he's really. Um, The individual out there that has brought this conversation to life with regard to um, what uh, personalized learning can potentially mean, and specifically, you know, his interest kind of stems from the nature of creativity. Mm Kind of add to that. You're interested
4: in sort of expanding your um, resources for what's going on in the future.
3: Oh, definitely.
4: which touches on education, but touches on pretty pretty much everything else. And we would suggest you follow a futurist that we know very well. His name is Brian David Johnson. Brian has a a rich history in in his role as a futurist for both high-level corporate America, he's now the futurist in residence at ASU, Um, and he's a friend of the firm as well. Um, But Brian is, is one of the broadest points of view about the future of anybody I've ever met. And he's actively involved throughout the year in all sorts of conversations about where the future is headed. And Because we're interested in personalized learning for all, you know, that has to embrace all aspects of learning, not just what we would see in the education marketplace, not certainly what we would see bracketed by simply what architects are doing in response to the changes in education. which sort of what we're doing isn't as much as you might think. Um, So those are two resources that I I think will help broaden people's perspective on just what's going on out there.
2: Okay. We added them to the show notes, Brian David Johnson and Ken Robinson. Um, And Brian
3: has written a chapter in the book on the, um, the significance of sentient tools and what the impact uh, that will be on our future so that's that's also a little entree
2: great if you were recommending another book to our listeners what might that book be
4: the one that i recommend almost daily to somebody is tom friedman's book thank you for being late um, <laughs> Yes. the reason for that really goes down to his dissertation on the pace of change which we find when we start to talk to people about the future, is one of the more challenging things people are asked to do, right? Tell me what you think life's going to be like 10 years from now. Go, right? What's your answer? First of all, getting people to to just put themselves in a position of 10 years out is a challenge. Then to get them to actually sort of internalize it emotionally is an equal challenge. And the truth of the matter is I'm pretty well convinced that, Uh, The pace of change is one of the things we have to concentrate most on as we delve
1: into how we're learning. Just remember that the iPhone didn't exist until
4: 2007. That's barely 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. And there will be several iterations of that technology in the next 12 years, not just one. Um, And the implications of that on how we function, whether it's AI or virtual reality or any number of things, will change the way we look at our day-to-day activities more so than we can even imagine today.
2: One more question, how how do you both learn regularly? Is there an online site, a resource, a person with whom you connect? You know, it's all of those
3: things. Um, It's no one thing in particular. Because learning is everywhere and it's all around us, and we all come at it from a different place. Um, I think, you know, whether I'm reading a book or I'm looking at something online or I'm having a conversation with somebody or I'm, you know, sitting in the park observing people around me, I'm in a constant state of learning. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think part of it is being open to all the things that are happening around us, in whatever form they come at us in. So, you know, learning is absolutely everywhere, and there's, in my mind, there's no real definitive site. I certainly follow lots of education uh, publications and trades and lots of workplace um, publications and trades. There's so much being written on workplace learning, I think it's one of the Areas where we're seeing a dramatic amount of um, material. Um, I was, you know, we go to conferences. I was just at South by Southwest Edu last week in Austin. Uh, We had a presentation there. There's, there are just opportunities everywhere, and I think people have to connect with those opportunities from whatever interests them most.
4: Uh, Yeah, there's four, three or four that I I monitor pretty much on a daily basis. Actually, there's five. (laughs) One is I I listen or I follow Michael Horn from the Clay Christensen Institute fairly regularly in terms of, and he's a prolific uh, in in terms of his presence on sites like LinkedIn and others. Deloitte usually publishes a couple of reports on an annual basis. Um, Most recent ones deal with. Kind of learning and um, sort of the importance of social engagement in the work environment, which is um, a highly collaborative kind of thing and, and uh, very important to the future of how we define the worker. Um, uh, I listen to or read reports from McKinsey um, frequently and
1: Brookings uh, almost daily. Uh, and it's not so much because they're all focused
4: on in education, but because much of what they um, publish in one way or another has an impact on some other conversation that I'm having. So of those four, the fifth one is a really interesting group out of Boston called Burning Glass Studios, um, which is uh, a group that is looking at skill sets for the future. Um, They have a concept of... um, Employment opportunities are going to come with their own DNA strand relative to the skill sets required to be successful. Um, fascinating small group that does great research that um, begins to help shape the conversation about what should I be learning if I want to be
1: successful in a particular career. Thank All you. right. So some good resources there for our listeners. Sort of get inside your mind. What, what informs your thinking around this uh, personalized learning and... Uh, design work that you're doing. So you you've got a book, you talked about the institute that's about a year old and work that you're doing there. What what's next for both of you and what are you working on that you'd like to share with our audience?
3: Well, there's definitely no shortage of things to be done to really get the institute up and running. That is that's for sure. And our and our biggest challenge right now is of course operations, funding, those kinds of things that the the administrative stuff when you'd rather be focused on the fun stuff,
2: right? So
3: that that's a big challenge for us, certainly, going forward. I think the, um, the thing that I am most interested in is just the application. And it's how we start applying the idea of learning can happen anywhere to the design of space. And that's, you know, from a, a standpoint of what we do on a day-to-day basis, what we're most interested in so whether or not you're you know, going to work, you're eating in a restaurant, you're you know seeing a play in a theater, um, or you're in school, you know, there are opportunities for learning everywhere. And how do we begin to see space influence those opportunities in the things that are less traditional? So, the places that we don't necessarily think of as learning spaces, I think. For us right now, that's one of the more fascinating challenges.
4: And although not immediate, um, you know, the book is meant to be a collaborative experience with other voices. And so at some point in the future, I would see us extending invitations and opportunities for other people to participate in the book and perhaps a second edition. Again, we're not planning on doing that right now. now. But I I do see it as uh, this is not a one-shot experience in our literary skill set. It it helps to be a continuing conversation and dialogue.
2: Well, thank you so much um, to both of you, Dick and Lauren, for joining us. We have linked in the show notes uh, the book, the website, a YouTube video, uh, some information about the Institute, and some of those experts that Lauren and Dick shared with us. Excellent. Thank you.
1: Each episode, we leave you with a couple of questions to think about with the idea of provoking reflection and conversation, because that's where the learning happens. This episode's questions, why do we need personalized learning for all? And how can you lead the way in your school or district? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for Season 5, Episode 30. That's all for this episode. We'll be back soon with more conversations featuring other innovative thought leaders. Thanks again, Dick and Lauren.
2: Thanks, Dick. Thanks, Lauren. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
4: Bye-bye.